0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, July 22nd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. We get the Mayor's thoughts on this year's edition of the Calgary Stampede and discuss the future of the Green Line LRT project amid rising costs influenced by record high inflation and increased lending rates.
1: Pope Francis touches down in Edmonton on Sunday. What does this mean to the Indigenous community? We'll talk about the significance of the visit with Crystal Gale Fraser, professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and the Department of History at the University
0: of Alberta. And finally, we head south of the border to catch up with Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Reggie gives us a health update on President Joe Biden, who has tested positive for COVID-19, and details on the bombshell evidence presented this week in the January 6th insurrection hearings. A lot of money, a lot of dollars have already been spent on the Green Line LRT project, but Ward 1 counselor Sonia Sharp is suggesting reconsidering the project amid inflation and uh, cost ex- escalation. With details on everything happening in City Hall this week, we are joined by Mayor Jyoti Gondek. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor.
2: Good morning, Andy and Sue. How are you?
0: Good, good. Hey, listen, uh, before we get to the business of what's ahead here in the city, we want to look back. Well, beyond last weekend, the weekend before, we didn't have a chance to speak with you because, of course, Calgary Stampede, you were busy doing the whole parade thing. I want to ask you to reflect on your first Stampede as mayor as far as what you did see and what it meant to you to see the success of Stampede 2022 after the past few years.
2: Um, Well, I I guess I have to say, wow, when it comes to the number of people that came out, there was something like 300,000 people along that parade route. Um, It was the privilege of a lifetime to be riding in that parade and see so many people happy to be out and about, celebrating a sense of community, and feeling like they belong to a part of something bigger than just them. So it was absolutely incredible. There was uh, Pride Day at the Nashville North Tent, and the energy in that room was electric. There was a drag brunch at the Cowboys Music Festival that had 7,000 people, and I have never delivered... A land acknowledgement where the crowd took the time to cheer each nation as I mentioned it. It was unbelievable. Awesome. And you didn't fall off your horse. So that was good. I too. didn't fall off my horse. There's a bonus.
1: <laughs> well done. It was a great time for everybody, for sure. Uh, let's talk about this because we've been teasing it a little bit this morning about the, uh, the Green Line, the LRT project. Is it in jeopardy
2: or where are we looking right
1: now with the cost as, as it
2: continues to balloon? Well, we had um, a pretty good update on Wednesday at our executive committee meeting, and there was no red flags of alarm brought to us by the Green Line Board. They did indicate to us that the board and the administrative team is keeping a close eye on costs. We all know that there are increased costs due to competitiveness of the market, due to supply chain issues, but it's like any other project that we are working on that anybody is working on, quite frankly. So... They simply told us that they continue to monitor the project, and if there are any grave concerns, they will let us know. Now, I would like to point out that when Councilor Sharp made a comment about reconsidering the project, I think she may have been implying that we need to reconsider certain stages or phases or exactly what we're doing. I don't believe she meant a full reconsideration vote, so I just want to point that out, that the language is sometimes tricky, but I don't want to speak for her.
0: All right, let's switch gears. Ward 9, Councillor Giancarlo Carra, under investigation for not disclosing an investment in an Inglewood property. I guess the question would be, is it an oversight or an intentional omission? Where does it go from here? Uh, can you give us any details about you know what we'll see as far as the investigation is concerned?
2: Well, I can tell you that the investigation that was completed and concluded and made public by the integrity commissioner indicates that indeed there was a failure to disclose Um, And as a result of that failure to disclose, the Integrity Commissioner, which is an independent third party, recommended to Council certain sanctions. And Council took the advice of the Integrity Commissioner. Councillor Karaj is expected to make a full apology publicly. He has been removed from his position as chair of the Infrastructure and Planning Committee. And so those are the sanctions that were levied by council based on the recommendations of the integrity commissioner's investigation, which have concluded.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the new vertical farming pilot project that's coming to Bridgeland?
2: I can tell you that the pilot part of the project, the thing that is supposed to be replicated if it's successful, is the ability to use civic assets or buildings, if you will, that the city owns and repurpose them for urban agriculture. That's what we were supposed to be debating in a fulsome way at committee. We got a little bit waylaid because the potential partner for the project uh, was asked to submit their business case. And there was a lot of questions about the business case rather than the investment into repurposing a civic facility. So we went a little bit off the rails on that one. It'll be coming back to us
0: at a future date. Let's talk about, and I like to think almost like, you know, when you're a student and your teacher's, uh, you know, say goodbye in June. You know, they see you again in September and you uh, don't realize that these are real people who have vacations. <laughs> Maybe this is a similar situation when it comes to politicians. So this is the last time we're going to speak with you until September. Any big summer plans? Because uh, you have a summer like anybody else, don't you?
2: Well, I try to have a summer like anybody else. Um, we are actually going to
0: celebrate my husband's
2: parents' 60th anniversary back in Manitoba for a few days. That's coming up for us fairly soon. We'll see if we can get away to a beach somewhere. Um, It's kind of up in the air right now, and, you know, it'll depend on everyone's health as well. But the tricky thing for those of us in elected positions is there's certain times that there's no committee scheduled. Mm -hmm. August happens to be one of them. December is another period of time. So that's when we try to get away if we can. Well, we wish you a wonderful summer holiday, a nice
1: break. We'll be back putting the pressure on you in September. Can't wait till then. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. I'm ready for the pressure. I hope you all have a great summer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Calgary Mayor Jyoti Gondek.
0: High praise from the mayor when it came to, to Stampede. Yes. And I think it's uh, something that uh, when we have the chance to speak with CEO and president of the Calgary Chamber, Deborah Yedlin, talk about the um, economic impact when we have that time we speak with her on a regular basis. I think that we lose sight of the fact that it's not just that chance to have that corn corndog and, and- yes, yeah. but the fact that the economic indicators and the residual effect, I think, Because maybe some people came to Calgary for the first time and they're going to plan on coming back next year or visiting us during another time of the year as well.
1: Yeah, you're right. It was a big deal. We needed it. The hospitality industry needed it. Restaurants, everything. It was really important to get that infusion of cash and, and really just the energy that it brought to the city too. So yeah. Pope Francis is trying to walk the path towards truth and reconciliation, touching down in Canada this Sunday. Joining us with some insight into the meaning of this visit and the apology to the Indigenous community is Crystal Gale Fraser, Professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and the Department of History, Classics and Religion at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. So uh, as a member of the Governing Circle Guiding the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, how important is the Pope's visit?
3: Well, I think that the visit itself is very significant. It is historic, but we also have to remember that... This visit is only possible because of the conversations that we've been having over the last 14 months or so uh, in context of unmarked graves and Indian residential schools and genocide. And so this visit is really being framed in a way of... Uh, reconciliation, of advancing healing and spirituality but we also have to think back to the context of why the Pope is here, the fact that really for decades Indigenous communities have been calling for an apology and a visit and this is now coming to
0: fruition. From your angle of expertise, uh, Crystal, let's talk about how Pope Francis' message will be received by the Indigenous community and, and how meaningful his visit is. Yeah, well,
3: I think are many different audiences for this visit. I mean, of course, first and foremost, it should be about the survivors of Indian residential schools. And it'll be interesting to see how the Pope and his team really interacts with local Indigenous communities, because we know that he's visiting uh, Lac Saint Anne, uh, Iqaluit, Nunavut, and then, of course, um quebec and and i'm really hoping that there will not be this pan-indigenous approach taken um because each region is very diverse and unique each one of these um indigenous communities and the nations who live there speak their own languages and and have their own histories and so i really hope that the local contexts are taken into consideration
1: does this visit by the pope and the apology by him you know via the catholic church does it does it actually help with the healing process do you think and and sort of moving towards that reconciliation that we're all trying to help achieve? I think it will for
3: some people. You know, there are many survivors, many Indigenous communities who are are avid members of the Catholic Church. And and I think for those people in particular, you know, seeing the leader of of the Catholic Church apologize in this way and making these gestures, I think that is a very positive thing. I think that if it can advance advance any kind of healing in this country um i think that is a good thing but i also think that for for other people me included you know we are also closely watching for action and accountability that you know from from other leaders in this country we have heard apologies time and time again yet for a lot of indigenous people in canada not a lot has changed on the ground. And and so when Pope Francis is here interacting with these communities, of course, that is a good thing. But alongside... This apology, um, you know, I want to better understand how the Catholic Church is is committed to compensating survivors. They owe millions of dollars um, through the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Uh, I want to know about the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a papal bull from you know the 15th century that justified colonialism in this country, and and I want to know. What the Catholic Church is, is doing in regards to its, its current clergy and for me, former staff members who are still alive, who may have committed these crimes at residential schools. And so while the apology is important, I also think that the accountability and an action um, is equally as important.
0: We're speaking with Crystal Gail Fraser, professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and the Department of History, Classics, and Religion at the University of Alberta. And, uh, Professor, let's, let's talk about the compensation piece that you had mentioned when it comes to action. Do you think, what do you think the chances are, or have you heard anything, of the Catholic Church financially compensating the victims of the residential school system, and how optimistic are you that that will happen?
3: You know, I have not heard a lot of, of movement on that front. Um since this conversation about unmarked graves, you know, really transpired in an international format about 14 months ago, there was renewed calls for the Catholic Church to, uh, you know, open some of its archives. Um, in the pursuit of of truth and history of these institutions. And and we now know that the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation is coming to an agreement um, with Oblate Archives, with the Vatican, um, about the return of those documents. However, this question about compensation financially for survivors, I believe that is still kind of an open item that we have not had closure on yet. And if we look at the bigger context of, of how much this visit is is costing, which is an enormous amount of money, I think it the federal government alone is supporting $35 million for this visit. You know, my question is, um, is how could that money have been used? Um, mm-hmm. to, you know, support language revitalization? How could it have been used um, to infuse Indigenous communities with new economic opportunities? And and so the compensation piece is, is especially important when we consider the bigger financial cost of this trip.
1: Before we let you go, I wanted to ask you from what you know, has the Indigenous community as a whole been consulted enough about this visit and how it will roll out?
3: I mean, I don't think... See- Think so, uh, but that's an incredibly hard question to answer given the diversity across Canada. Um, I know that because here in the Edmonton region, Muskwa and Lac Saint Anne, um, these conversations have been fruitful and many. However, I come from the Northwest Territories, and and I know you know there are lingering questions um, in the north about you know how how to access the Pope. How can we facilitate travel? To the Commonwealth Stadium for this uh, giant mass. Um, how is it that we can best interact while the Pope is is here on these lands? And and so I know that folks have probably done their best, um, but I think that this this visit will probably dictate ones in the future about how best to include community.
0: Crystal, thanks for for joining us. A super timely interview. We appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for your interest.
0: That is Crystal Gale Fraser, professor in the Faculty of Native Studies and the Department of History, Classics, and Religion at the University of Alberta. And I and I wonder if anybody in Calgary, if are you going up to Edmonton? Mm-hmm. Is this something that you've? And I know that there was some confusion because they wanted to set aside uh, enough tickets for those folks who are residential school survivors, as they should. Which, uh, you know, obviously there will be it's sixty thousand people. I'm sure there will be seats available if if people across the province, if this is important to you. It's not every day that the pope comes to Alberta.
1: Most definitely not. Um, it's an important visit, obviously. Uh, will it be enough? Mm. Is it a good first step? I'm curious if there's anybody out there who's sort of, you know, been in that world. Are you? Are you a, a survivor of? Are you a yeah. relative of somebody who spent time in? In one of these schools, love to hear from you if this is important, an important step yeah. anyway
0: and 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 yet, your thoughts in general, we've mm-hmm. talked about the dollars and cents behind this visit and such. But is this what it takes? Is this going to um you know, offer that closure for the we're not going to gonna be, forget about what's no, happened?
1: obviously not. but yeah what you're saying right? like to be on Canadian soil yeah. to make this apology. is this important? Is this necessary? Despite desperate pleas from his inner circle and even his two eldest children, Donald Trump refused on January 6th to call off the mob attack at the U.S. Capitol. That's the latest bombshell testimony from the insurrection investigation. It's been pretty damning for Donald Trump, hasn't it? Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Uh, Damning for Donald Trump, isn't it, with all this testimony that's coming out
4: now? Damning. Uh, it it kind of puts a cap on what we have seen uh, over the last seven or eight hearings before this, which ultimately paints a picture of a president who this committee argues didn't fail in stopping this violence from moving forward or stopping that he simply chose to allow it to happen. And I think last night's hearing. Portraying these 187 minutes of inaction really kind of painted that final paint-by-numbers portrait of exactly what the president didn't do despite, as you said, every single person around him asking for him to act.
0: And interesting, when you look at some of the details that have been coming out uh, when it comes to January 6th, the, uh, we're hearing that the Secret Service says there's some missing texts. They wanted to you know, uncover everything. Uh, and they're unlikely to be uh, recovered. That's according to the New York Times. Another one says... The Secret Service cannot recover text, no new details. This is the Secret Service we're dealing with, and if the Secret Service can't find some texts, I'm guessing that they've disappeared for a reason.
4: Well, look, the the Secret Service, Secret Service issue really kind of is being seen under a new light right now. Yes, these text messages are not, you know, able to be found, according to the agency. The agency is also not allowed to be looking for them anymore because uh, the Inspector General has opened up a criminal probe into the agency, so it's kind of on hold. But at a more broad kind of look at this, these deleted Secret Service texts, with the which the agency says, you know, was part of a long planned device upgrade, um. Considering last night we heard testimony from Secret Service agents saying that they were calling family members or reaching out to other officers to talk to family members to say that that might be the end, that they may not come home at the end of that night, now knowing that so many of these text messages are simply unretrievable, it raises more questions as to why they didn't preserve these messages when they were asked by investigators and the committee, now knowing that some of these messages included what accounted to goodbyes.
1: Wow. Uh, what did we learn over the past couple of days at the, uh, the,
4: uh, as they're
1: doing the, the testimonies in terms of what Donald Trump was doing for the three hours during that
4: attack? I mean, quite simply, the committee says Donald Trump was doing nothing. He was watching TV, he was watching Fox News in the private dining room in the Oval Office um, gleefully believing that this was for a just cause, and instead of listening to the aides around him, instead of dispatching the National Guard like the Mayor of the District of Columbia had been asking for, he simply allowed this to go on uh, and pushed back on uh, any kind of attempts to quell the violence, on any attempts to get the, the, the protesters to go home. We saw the outtakes of those videos last night where he was simply refusing to acknowledge the moment Uh, and that's why we heard from this committee that not only did he not acknowledge the moment he didn't meet the moment as president
0: reggie where do we go from here because a damning testimony what could some of the possible outcomes be and how much longer are we going to have within this hearing
4: Well, so look, that was the end of the summer season. The fall season likely picks up in September. We heard from Liz Cheney that these are going to continue. More people are coming forward. More evidence is coming out. So these hearings will pick up again after the August recess. But time's running out for Democrats. They risk losing control in November. That's going to get in the way of keeping these investigations going forward. So the clock is ticking. What does it do? Well, it gives them an opportunity to put a couple of reports out. Does that land in the hands of the Department of Justice? That is a possibility here. But that in itself becomes problematic it's an election year the department of justice has policies to not announce indictments or investigations which could be seen as any kind of interference think back to hillary clinton in 2016 so it's kind of convoluted the pressure is mounting on doj we just have to wait to see what they're going to do
1: does trump run again in 2024 does he have the support of the republican party
4: well, they're not backing away from him right now. They're not telling him to not run. They're simply saying, maybe if you're going to run, don't announce it until after November because you could get in the wow. way of us getting that majority that we're looking for in the midterm election. So there's a quiet push right now to say, look, if you're going to announce this, announce this in November, late or December or early next year. But Donald Trump wants to run. He's already hinted that he could make this announcement anytime soon. Why is that? Well, he says that he has unfinished business that he wants to do from the election that was stolen from him, number one. Uh, But number two, being a president shields you from investigations. It shields you from charges. So there are questions as to whether this is simply for personal gain to ensure that no law enforcement agency can come after him.
0: Reggie, let's talk about uh, president Joe Biden. What a week for president Biden. Uh, we now know that he has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so if we can uh, touch on, you know how serious that case it looks to be, but also there was some talk about cancer when it comes to Joe Biden earlier this week, was it, was that a previous cancer that came up that they were talking about or, or, has he been diagnosed with another case of cancer as well?
4: It, it, so it was a previous cancer. You know, it's unclear whether he meant to say that or whether it was just kind of, uh, you know, he was rolling it into the fact that he and so many other people have cancer in this country. But it was it was a skin cancer that he had removed many, many years ago. And I think that people just latched on because there's not a lot of people who who kind of dive into the the, the previous health history of this president or really of any president unless it comes up. Uh, but the fact that he mentioned that, I think it was just putting kind of, kind of focus on the president himself and obviously there were certain networks that ran with that to try and use it as a way to go after the president's current health but now that he does have COVID that kind of has become the story. He's in isolation. He is still carrying out the duties uh, that he's supposed to just everything is being done virtually. He's on uh, antiviral medication right now. His oxygen levels according to the physician are good uh, and we're expecting to see the president possibly sometime next week after he's done isolation.
1: Speaking of healthcare, uh, access to birth control is certainly an issue especially after Roe v. Wade was overturned, but eight House Republicans joining the Democrats to ensure access to birth control. That's got to be a
4: surprise, is it not? It's a surprise uh, that some Republicans joined. Eight House Republicans, though not many, considering that there are you know a couple of hundred Mm -hmm. of House Republicans in the conference. But it shows that there is a little bit of traction here, also because popular opinion shows that overturning Roe uh, went against what the rest of the country wanted to see, and Republicans understand that heading into uh, an election year. I think what's more remarkable here is you're seeing more Republican support for other attempts to try and protect rights. That includes access to contraception. That also includes uh, codifying same-sex marriage into law law there were uh, more than 50 house republicans who signed on for that and there's a chance that that could actually pass the senate with bipartisan support so all of a sudden the rights that were threatened to be overturned by the supreme court could actually find a backing in what has typically been a very divided congress
0: the stock economy and here in canada bumping that interest rate a full point Uh, anything uh, being done to to combat the uh, high high inflation down in the u.s What, what are you hearing this week
4: Well, I mean, look, we are expecting another rate hike from the Federal uh, Reserve uh, at some point throughout uh, the next possible week, maybe week and a half. Again, an attempt to try and cut down on the spending, an attempt to try and cool things down here. We've seen gas prices fall recently. Some of the right-leaning networks are putting a thank you out to President Putin because the Biden administration blamed Russia for high gas prices. There's now a thanks to Russia for lowering gas prices, obviously a convoluted message here. But the fact that the economy is still chugging along kind of at a quick pace, but keeping inflation in the wrong direction, this is still problematic for Democrats. So while there are so many issues that they're trying to navigate right now, the economy is still number one. And they're trying to keep that as a top line issue heading into the midterms, along with everything else that Democrats are trying to focus on as well. Thank you
1: so much for the update, Reggie. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Reggie Chini is our Washington
0: correspondent for Global News. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't
1: forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.